The life of Abraham is found in Genesis chapter 12, all the way about through chapter uh, 24. And so um, we're going to notice one particular aspect of Abraham, that is Abraham and, and Jesus Christ. The things, some of the things in Abraham's life and work and existence that are definite reminders, we would even say... Um, previews and predictions of the Lord who was going to come. You think about the book of Genesis, you can think about the lives of uh, several men, beginning with Adam, and then Noah, and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, and pretty much that is the book of Genesis, isn't it? When you think about the lives of those, those men, that sums up the book of Genesis. And many of these things in the Old Testament are predictions and previews of great things to come uh, in association with Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles over and look at quickly with me to Hebrews 10 before we get actually started here. Hebrews Uh, 10. And you notice verse 1 there, Hebrews 10 and verse 1. For since the law, old law, has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities. These were shadows. Cast by God on the Old Testament pages. And you follow these shadows and you come to the, the beautiful, the reality of the Lord's plan in Jesus Christ. And you might also uh, note, as you've probably done before, Colossians uh, 2 and verse 17 in this regard. Colossians 2 and Notice verse 17. Well, I'll read uh, uh, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore let no one uh, judge you in questions of food and drink and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so with that in mind, we want to notice some matters about Abraham, and we'll start with Abraham's seed, and mainly this is God's promises to Abraham, and you're well aware of this, you're familiar with this, but let's, with a little review here, look at, look at Genesis chapter 12 with me, don't mind Genesis uh, chapter 12, and God begins to uh, communicate and show Abraham his plans for Abraham and his uh, family. So in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse, and in you, in particular, notice this, the last statement of Genesis 12.3, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
That's what we call the promise uh, of Abraham. God promised to Abraham. And it is confirmed several times here in these chapters of, uh, of Genesis. You might notice um, Genesis 15 also. Genesis 15. And look at verse 5. God brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. He said, Then he said to him, So shall your offspring, so shall your seed uh, be. And it says, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness, as righteousness. And then this one in Genesis 22, after Abraham had passed the test that God gave him, notice Genesis 22, 15 through 18. Genesis 22, starting in 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your seed, your offspring, as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your seed, in your offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now quickly let's notice what Paul says about this in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Paul makes some application of these promises. We've been studying Galatians in our men's class on Monday night and we are well aware of the fact that some of the Christians in the southern part of Galatia were um, because of pressure from their old friends were beginning to seek to add some elements of the old law, the old Mosaic law, to the gospel. Paul is urging them not to do this. And so that's his argument here in Galatians uh, 3. You'll notice, if you notice in Galatians 3, picking up in verse 5, He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the old law? Or does he do it through the hearing of faith? Of course, the answer to that is the second part. comes through faith under the new covenant. And then he says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now notice in Galatians 3 beginning in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What Paul is simply uh, saying there is, if you will follow the principle, the pattern of Abraham's (coughs) obedient faith, then you too can be sons of Abraham. That is, you will be heirs of of Abraham. You will be Abraham's true spiritual seed. But you've you've got to latch on to the obedient the type of obedient faith that Abraham had in his day. They needed to let go of the old law and simply focus on uh, obeying and serving the Lord. But notice within, within Paul's encouragement here, he's saying that 
God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In him shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that eventually pointed down to Jesus. Notice later in the chapter, Galatians 3, beginning in verse 15. You see this, Galatians 3, beginning in verse 15. Uh, to give a human example, Paul said, uh, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it, counsels it, or adds to it once it has been ratified. And now the promise that was made to Abraham and to his offspring, to his seed, it does not say, and to offspring, or to seed, plural, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. So Paul, of course, wants to make, it, wants to make sure everybody knows that this seed promise is referring to Jesus. And what he's ultimately saying here is that just because the old law came after the promises of Abraham, that doesn't cancel out the promises made to Abraham. The promises made to Abraham concerning Christ's coming was, was never canceled out just because the old law was given uh, some 400 years uh, later. And so the question then might arise, if you look at verse 19, Paul raises this question, then why the law? Why the law? Why, why did God in place the old law? Well, two reasons, sin and seed. Because of transgression, because of sin, and because the only answer to that was going to be the seed of Abraham. And so we see here that God's very promises, his initial promises that he confirmed again and again to Abraham, has a direct reference uh, to, to our Lord Jesus. To speak of this in a broader way, God's promises to Abraham included Christ's coming, but also to make a great nation out of him. And through that nation, through the lineage of that nation, Jesus would actually come in the, in the flesh. And so that's why in Genesis you read about him giving Abraham a land promise. You know. And so eventually God's people would be in uh, that promised land, the Judea area. Okay. He was going to give them that land. To have a nation, a really physical nation, they've got to have a land. And eventually God gave them not only land, but he gave them a law, the law of Moses, to operate, help them operate as a nation for all those years until it was time for Jesus to come. And so after now that Jesus has come, there's nothing special about that land, and there's nothing special about that that nation. Okay, we're all uh, we're all accountable to the gospel in the very same way. All right. So, any um, additional thoughts about this first part here, uh, Abraham and his uh, seed, and how that brings us down to Christ? All right. So, let's notice the second part here. This is uh, from Genesis uh, 14. Genesis 14. And Abraham meets Melchizedek. So the exact uh, paragraph there. Genesis 14, probably 13 through 20 or so. Okay. Genesis 14, 13 to 20. And what had been happening here is there had been a pretty big skirmish between the king of Sodom 
and the king of Elam. Many rebelled against the king of Elam. He was, he was powerful, but they rebelled against him. And pretty, several skirmishes happened. And during this time, Lot, of course, who had pitched his tent, he and his family had gone to Sodom, pitched their tent. And during this time, Lot and his family were captured during these skirmishes. And word came to Abraham, what did Abraham do? What did Abraham do about this? Yeah, he went and rescued every one of them. It's, Abraham was a warrior, and it kind of just surprises you in a way because you think about him a man of faith, but when you come upon this instance, then he just gathers his servants and his uh, mighty men that he has there within his plantation uh, or within his realm of association there with his family, and uh, he takes over 300 and and goes, he rescues them. He brings back spoils from this battle. And, um, and then when he's coming back from the victory of the rescue, this is when he meets Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is king of Salem. Later, Salem will become uh, Jerusalem. Okay. Salem means peace. Salam, Salem means peace. He is king of Salem or king of Jerusalem at that time. He's operating as king of Salem, Melchizedek is. And at the same time, he is priest of the Most High God. So when Abraham meets him, he gives him tithes. He gives him a tenth of all of his spoils. And then also, Melchizedek, uh, the priest, blesses Abraham. Here in verse 19, it says, uh, he blessed him, said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then the next statement is, Abram gave him a tenth of everything uh, that he got. So this is the occurrence of him running into uh, Melchizedek. And this um, becomes a shadow of Christ coming one day and serving as high priest. So let's, let's think about that. Uh, first thing, let's, let's read Psalm 110 together. This is a prediction of Jesus' association with, with Melchizedek. So Psalm number 110 is a wonderful prophecy of this parallel. So we'll just begin in verse 1. Psalm number 110. 110. And uh, these are familiar words to you. Uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies your footsteps. I believe Hebrews 1 applies that right to Jesus, that little statement. But then uh, further, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, uh, ruling in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Uh, from the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth, you will, um, will, it will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so that, in association uh, with Hebrews 6, 19, 6 verse 20, and then on into Hebrews chapter 7, there's a discussion there by the apostle how that Jesus is 
the high priest after the order. Order there means after the arrangement, okay, similar to the arrangement of Melchizedek. Okay. So on your paper here then, you've got Genesis 14, and then you've got Psalm 110, and then you can write um, these Hebrew passages down. The first one here, uh, write, write down three under the first Hebrews. Well, yeah. So, like, um, what we want to do is make three comparisons between Christ and Melchizedek. Okay. So you just write down the passages as you want to. But you see, Melchizedek back in those old times, he is serving as both king and priest at the same time. Okay. And then that is exactly what Jesus did as well. Jesus is now serving both as king and high priest uh, in our behalf. So Hebrews 1, turn over to Hebrews 1, that shows uh, that very thing. Hebrews 1 in verse, uh, verse 3. Hebrews 1 and verse 3. The apostle here, uh, talking about Jesus, of course, God in his last days has spoken through his son. That's verse 2, Hebrews 1, verse 2. And then he just continues to talk about the Lord Jesus in verse 3. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews 1, 3, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After, now notice this, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So notice those, that particular statement. So he made purification for sins as our high priest, Jesus did, through the shedding of his own blood. But then at the same time, when he went up into heaven, he sat down on the right hand of God, and he's now ruling over over us over the world, over the church in particular. So he's, the similarity there between Melchizedek and Jesus, they, they both rule as, as king and high and priest at the same time. A second similarity between Melchizedek and Jesus is um, the Hebrews passage in chapter 7 is going to say uh, Melchizedek didn't have, uh, was without mother or father without mother or father. And all that means is that Melchizedek got his appointment to be priest and king directly from God. He did not get it in the usual earthly way of, of inheriting it from a family. Okay? It wasn't from genealogy. It wasn't from handed down from his parents that he, made, he was king and priest. But rather, uh, he, just, he was specially appointed. So it is with Jesus. Jesus is specially appointed. He's a special son of God. He was sent for the very purpose of becoming who he is, king and priest and everything else he is uh, for us. And Jesus did not get his role as king and priest through an earthly uh, lineage as well. All right. And then, what is the third parallel? between Jesus and Melchizedek. It says, uh, in Hebrews 7, verse 3, it says, He's without father or mother or genealogy. 
Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The third parallel is that with Melchizedek's kingship and priesthood, he had no term limits. Okay, there, was, there was nothing holding him back. He was going to serve until he could serve no more. Okay. Same thing with Jesus uh, and his role and his rule as king and his role as high priest. There are no limits to it okay. uh, until God's ready to uh, end this earth and, and take, take us to the next level. Uh, but Jesus is going to continue to reign till then. Okay. If you look at Numbers, that's why I've got Numbers here. If you look at Numbers chapter 4 with me, um, we'll understand this comparison a little bit better. Numbers 4, verse 3, it says that the priests of, of Aaron's lineage, uh, they would serve from about 30 years old to 50 years old. And they would come on duty and do their work in the tenant meeting during those years. So there were term limits to the regular priests of Aaron's day and the people that came after Aaron and of his lineage. They would serve from about 30 years old to 50 years old. But nothing doing with Melchizedek on that and, and of course, Jesus uh, also. And so you see how Melchizedek is, uh, is, shows up as a parallel to the coming of Jesus and some similarities there. Okay. Anything else we need you'd like to say about that as comparison and with Melchizedek? He was a real person. Some folks have read these little statements: no father, no beginning, no end. And they, they thought he was an angel or something, but he wasn't an angel. He was a real person, and, and God had all this set up. It's amazing how God was, was, knew what His plan was from the very beginning. He set up these little images, these little previews uh, for people to grasp hold of and, and cling to as Jesus was on his way. Right. So what chapter then, number three, what chapter has the offering of Isaac upon the altar? Genesis 22. Genesis 22. We're all familiar with that, and it's an amazing story. It's an amazing thought. And, uh, every time you read it, you just walk away with, um, with just being challenged by Abraham's great faith. But if you look at verse 13, especially, of course, now, was Isaac Abraham's only son? Well, of course not. He'd already had a son, right? Who was that? Ishmael. But in some sense, because he's, he's going to be the promised one, he's the one through whom the promise is going to come. Um, if, when we read just a moment ago from Genesis 22, four, uh, 16, God said, By myself I have sworn declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. But in, in this, not only son in the sense of only son, but only son in the sense of this is the promised one. This is the one that God had been promising them and it finally did uh, come. And Abraham knowing that, still was ready to, uh, to sacrifice his son and completely obey God in this instance. 
So that's, that relates a little bit to the, uh, the Lord's situation because John 3, 16, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that relates a little bit there. But look at uh, verse 13 in Genesis 22. It says, uh, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in, instead in the stead of his son. So that pictures uh, for us what Jesus would ultimately do. He, he, would, he would die in our place. And the reference I have there, uh, and there are many in the New Testament. One of my favorite is 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. And just read that. And... Um, but in 1 Peter 3.18, Peter had been discussing uh, the suffering of the saints in those, in those days. Then he says this, Christ also suffered uh, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, uh, being put to uh, death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You see that? 1 Peter 3. Verse 18, that is, that is just full of wonderful meaning there. But you see that, that Jesus uh, freely took our place. Uh, as we sing, he bore it off uh, for us. Right, and then moving on here, number four, uh, Abraham and circumcision. In Genesis 17, God uh, confirms his covenant with Abraham uh, and brings up circumcision. And you know what? Circumcision uh, is, was and is. Um, basically, if you look at Genesis 17 beginning in verse 9 through 11, God is setting up uh, this act of circumcision. It's, a, it's an outward, physical, fleshly act that God imposed on all the Hebrew males in order to uh, signify his special relationship with his people. And so... Uh, they would um, eventually circumcise uh, their, their little boys at eight days old. So this is something God imposed upon the Hebrew males, and, and Abraham at once began to um, impose that upon uh, him and his family. The, the, uh, the act of circumcision. But... Um, as we were reading in men's class uh, Monday evening, I believe Larry Little was reading this uh, for us, but Colossians 2 has a reference to circumcision being related to our obedience to the gospel. You'll notice this, Colossians 2, this is a beautiful passage. It explains what happens when one comes uh, to the Lord, and he, Paul uses the idea of circumcision to explain this. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 11. In Him, that's Christ, in Christ, in, in Christ, and He's speaking to Christians, so He's reminding Christians, this is what you did, this is what happened. And we need to be reminded, don't we, of the commitment that we made when we came to Christ in obedience. The Colossians 2, beginning in verse 11. In Christ also you are circumcised, and of course, circumcised has the idea of cutting 
Okay. So, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. We're not talking about something physical here. By the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So in other words, as we come to Christ, we are taught that before we're baptized, we need to, to understand the commitment that we're making. And then we need to repent of our sins. Turn away from sin. But in intermingled there also is a commitment that we are through with the world. When you come to Christ, you've not committed every sin there ever was to commit. But you realize you're a sinner. But you also realize that the world is not the way. And so you are, you are cutting that off from you. You are, you are as Paul will say in, 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 um, in Galatians a lot, I, I am crucified to the world and the world to me. You're, you're cutting, you're cutting the, the ideal of sin away. Your, your lordship now is going to be the Lord. You're enthroning him. Not, not that you won't ever make a mistake or, or ever sin. You will plenty of times. But that's not your way. That's not your goal. That's not, your, that's not what you're living for. And so this is kind of the way Paul uses circumcision here. He, he says, you remember that when you came to Christ for baptism, when you submitted, you cut off the flesh. You cut off the desires of the flesh. You, 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 made, a, you made a decision and a commitment that you were going to live for the Lord, live for heaven, live for, uh, concentrate and prioritize the spiritual things over the physical and everything that goes with that. So in Abraham we see at least these four um, these four associations. One thing I want to mention uh, here is that people have taken circumcision from Genesis 17 and kind of gone haywire with it. For one thing, uh, those who have uh, who have uh, taught about infant baptism uh, in our day, in the last few years and in our day, use what happened there in Genesis 17 to, to try to support what they do in infant baptism. They say, well, uh, God took Abraham there and did some kind of outward physical display uh, to represent a relationship with him. And they emphasize that God is a covenant God and that Abraham was to do this with his children, with his seed, and those after him with their children or little boys. And so uh, we, with infant baptism then, so the, so the argument goes, uh, we with our children and before God, we do infant baptism in order to show that we are dedicated to bringing our children up as godly people. We're going to, we're dedicating ourselves to God. And so we're doing this outward thing, physical thing, to show our dedication for bringing up our children. Of course, infant baptism is, it shouldn't ever be practiced. Number one, it's not scriptural. God didn't call for that. Uh, number two, it's not needful. Children do not have sins. We don't baptize people unless they realize, unless they are sinners. And of course, 
uh, it's not possible because those who are baptized must be believers, they must be penitent, they must be able to commit uh, some of the things we were just saying. Okay. But they have used this ideal of God's covenant with, um, with Abraham to try to support what they do with him for baptism. Now, on the heels of that, there are churches who do baby dedication ceremonies. Okay. And the reasoning for that is the very same reasoning that, that has been given for infant baptism. They want to do something because when you listen to those who support the uh, baby dedication ceremonies, they'll say very, very same thing. They'll say, well, God is a covenant God. Uh, God has uh, had a lot of ceremonies surrounding him, and so we feel like, based on that, it'd be okay to make a ceremony out of dedicating our babies, and all we're doing is we're saying that we are dedicating ourselves to being godly parents, and we want our church family to know about this, and we are, we're making this commitment to publicly bring our children up in the world, or in, up godly in this, in this world. That's, that's kind of the basis of why people do baby dedication ceremonies in a church service. And the reason we will not do that, we shouldn't do that, is uh, several reasons. Okay. One is that when we come to Christ and we're baptized okay, and we're raised to walk in the of life, when we do that, we are assuming all sacred responsibilities at that time. Right? And we come up out of that water... That's the commitment we made. Everything that God would expect of us, whether it be uh, our example at work, or whether we are going to be husband and wife, or, or you know, the type of worshiper we're going to be, and the type of parents we're going to When we come out of the water, that is assumed right then that you are committed to being all God would have you to be in whatever role that comes up in your life. So there's no need for having these uh, extra ceremonies. That, that baptismal um, act, uh, that obedience, is, uh, takes care of that. Another thought is this. Only God can make a spiritual covenant. Only God can initiate a spiritual ceremony. And that's one thing, that's the big thing, I think, probably, that uh, those of infant baptism, those of baby dedication ceremonies, they they seem to forget that. That when you look through the Bible and you, you do see these covenants and contracts and, and things that God is initiating, like, you know, he, he did a uh, spiritual covenant with Adam there in the garden, working in that garden, and, and Eve there. And then he did a special uh, kind of agreement situation with Noah, but it was God doing this. It was God's, God's initiating this. And then God makes this covenant with circumcision and Abraham and his seed and he stipulates the, the ideals behind this covenant with Abraham here. God is the one that initiated the, the old covenant, the old law of Moses, with Moses there on, on the mount. And God is the one that has initiated the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And so there's no need and really we have no authority to go around uh, creating different kinds of covenants or different kinds of ceremonies in addition to what God has already uh, done, already established. So remember, uh, 
a good passage to write down uh, is that uh, passage we like to read in Matthew 26, 28, when we talk about the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, when he talked about the cup, he said, this is the blood of what? This is the blood of what? This is the blood of the New Testament. This is the blood of the New Covenant. And so Jesus' blood was shed once for all. Once for all time. And when he did that, it established this new covenant, and there's nothing else like it. There's nothing that should be added to it. Nothing of it that should be taken away. And it, it is now implemented and confirmed by the shedding of Jesus' blood. Now, I like also this statement in Hebrews uh, 13. Yeah, it is. Um, it is part of that doxology that we read last week. But notice this. Um, the apostle says, Now may the God of peace who brought you again, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now that eternal covenant ought to be sufficient for us. When we come to Christ in submission, we are, at that time, we are saying, everything that this new covenant wants me to be, I'm going to be. Everything the new covenant does not want me to have in my life, I'm not going to have it in my life. When we come to Christ, then we are making that decision then once for all, all time, once for the rest of our lives. So, Abraham and Christ. I'm just amazed at how much forethought God put in to everything he was doing. And I don't think we've, even with just Abraham tonight, I don't think we've even touched upon everything that was foreseen through the life of Abraham. But this gives us an idea, some idea of what God is doing. Thank you for being here in class. And I encourage you to take this and, and do some further study on it. Run some more references uh, in your Bible with these ideas behind it.